0: Real lessons from real founders. The Early Days podcast. The founder and CEO of everyone's favorite email client, Rahul Vora, shares his approach to building two successful startups and how Superhuman first got started.
1: We've got Rahul with us, uh, the co-founder and CEO of Superhuman. Rahul, welcome. Today, we're super excited to hear your story, uh, to talk about Superhuman and how you great. Well, how thank you, you built for having it? Me. Of course. So, for anyone who doesn't know on the call what Superhuman is, uh, I'd assume people are joining to hear hear or people are joining knowing what it is. And you know, every single person that I talk to uh, who uses Superhuman talks about it as you know one of the most life changing things that they've ever adopted. But uh, could you just give us a quick rundown of like how do you think about Superhuman when someone asks you, uh, you know what what are you the CEO of Rahul? How do you explain it? Absolutely. Well, as a founder
0: and as everyone here should have. You need a quick elevator pitch. So, the quick elevator pitch for Superhuman is that it is the fastest email experience ever made. Our customers get through that inbox twice as fast as before, reply to their important emails sooner, and many of them see inbox zero for the first time in years. Awesome.
1: And like I said, so I have to admit to you, Rahul, I don't use Superhuman. I'm a bit of a a Gmail curmudgeon. Um, I was a huge fan of Reportive, uh, the company you built before. That was really life changing for me. But um, almost everybody I know, especially in the venture capital uh, ecosystem, uses Superhuman and sort of lives and dies by it. Uh, they can't say enough good things about how much time it saves them and, and how much it's changed their life. Uh, so today, what we really want to focus on is to zoom back and, and really learn more about you as a founder um, before Superhuman, sort of how you decided to become an entrepreneur, uh, how you came up with the idea for Superhuman, and to really laser focus down in on the the first six months of, of getting Superhuman off the ground. So to kick us off, we'd love to hear about your story. And, and I guess the most interesting question for me is, how did you decide to become an entrepreneur? Like when in your life were you like, you know what, I- I'm going to build companies for a living?
0: I became fascinated with computers before I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. So this was from a really early age. And it started like how I think it starts for many of us which was a love for video games that has persisted to this day. So video games got me into computers, and then slowly but surely I wanted to learn how to program them, and I started to learn how to code when I was just eight years old. So by the time I went to university, where I studied computer science, I was very fortunate to have spent basically every single evening from that age of eight to that age of 18 programming, or coding in some way. I don't know if folks still believe in Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours, but again, I was very fortunate to have had 10,000 hours by the time I went to university. During that period, I would say about as a teenager, I felt like it would be worth shooting for financial freedom. I could see my parents working really, really hard. They're both doctors but they were still sort of trapped in this ecosystem where uh, financial freedom isn't really something that, at least in England, a doctor can achieve. You can obviously live a fantastic life, but not what I think most people would call financially free. So that was one of my initial goals. But then I went to Cambridge, I studied computer science, and I started networking pretty hard. I met lots of people who had achieved financial freedom And many of them didn't actually seem all that happy or fulfilled. And so I learned a very important lesson, I think, relatively early around the ages of 18, 19, 20, which is that's not really enough. It's a great thing to have and it's a byproduct of success, but at least for me, it wasn't a thing worth aiming for. It eventually becomes pretty hollow and, of course the goalposts keep on shifting as one's lifestyle increases. So it very quickly became, I think I remember around the age of 21, realizing that's not it. What it really is, what the driving force really is, is to create beautiful things that make people smile. And that was the impetus behind reportive and also the driving force behind superhuman. I mean, how
1: how lucky to have learned that so early on. Yeah, I feel blessed that I was able to meet those people at that age. Yeah. And so it seems like, so you learned how to code, you became an engineer, then you sort of stacked the, okay, I need to make money doing this. And that's sort of where you arrive at. You make money by building a business and then you sort of added the final layer on top of it, which is, I don't just care about making money. I actually want to make things that make people's lives way better.
0: Yes, exactly. little tweak on the end. Beautiful things that make people smile. And so that sort of captures a lot of nuance that is very important to me. That the the objet d'art, the thing that is being created, is in itself beautiful. And that's just something I hold uh, to be very valuable. And also that it delights people, that it creates joy, that it brings a little bit of light into people's lives. There's lots of ways you can make people's lives better that aren't beautiful, that aren't delightful. And I just realized I'm not interested in those things, but I'm very interested in beautiful things that make people
1: smile. Awesome. And so can you talk me through, so you, you developed this framework, right? These kind of three steps of, you know, obviously you want to write code. I want to engineer. I want to build things on computers. Uh, I want to make money doing it. And then I want to make people smile. I want to bring you know joy to their life. How did you take that framework and then start applying it to building businesses? So h- how did you actually bring that to life? Like we can talk about, um, reported, for example, right? Like what was your process of going through and bringing that framework to life and going out and figuring out what's a problem that I can solve for people that's going to make them smile, bring joy to their life.
0: So reportive came out of a very personal problem I was feeling. I had gone through the undergraduate's computer science experience at Cambridge. I'd started a PhD in computer science also and got about one year into that before, and this is cliche, I of course dropped out because it wasn't really for me. I, I like to operate <laughs> in teams. I like to produce products and experiences and uh, a PhD for, for anyone who's contemplated or been through one is obviously not that. So I dropped out and then I was a little bit at a loose end. And so I networked my way into the part of the university that helps staff and students create businesses. This is an organization called Cambridge University Entrepreneurs, and it's a student-run organization. And it's not an exaggeration to say that up until I had taken it over, it had not been particularly well-run for a number of years. The previous Uh, leaders had run out of all the money and not been successful at raising more. So my my first professional job ever was having to raise hundreds of thousands of dollars to fuel this organization, which had essentially become bankrupt over the course of the last year or two. And it was trial by fire. Some folks on this call may have raised money. We all know how hard it is. If we haven't tried, at least we've heard of other people who've tried to do it, some with great success, some of us struggle, but by far the hardest way to do it is for a not-for-profit enterprise. So we were essentially a charity. We weren't taking equity, we were literally just granting money to teams that wanted to create businesses. That's hard to raise money for because you're not really selling anything in return except for the feeling of doing the right thing. And so it was trial by fire, learning fundraising in the best possible way which is selling not-for-profits, and it was hard. I remember going to events. I'm not particularly great with people, struggling to remember who is who, what's your name, have I actually met you before? I'm also not particularly great with faces. Realizing that software could help solve all of these things. What if in your email, whenever anybody emailed you over there on the right-hand side, you could see what people look like, where they work, the role that they have, and even things like their recent tweets and a link to their LinkedIn profile, so you can very quickly get up to speed on who they are, so that you can then connect, establish rapport, hence reportive, and do your business with them. So I really built it for me. It was a a very uh, sort of solve my own problem itch to scratch. It took about six weeks to build the first version, and then it kind of blew my expectations away. We had tens of thousands of users sign up over the course of those first few weeks
1: (laughs) yeah i mean it was i mean if if you go back to your framework of like making people smile and sort of bringing joy to their life i think when i found report of it changed my life uh in terms of how i reached out to people Uh, it changed my life in terms of how contextual i could be when i was emailing someone for the first time it just gave me so much more information um and so I think, so it sounds like very much you were solving your own problem. Like you were your first customer and you solved that problem. And then it turned out there was a lot of other people out in the world who happened to have that that same problem. Um, so can you, so let's fast forward to, so Reportive got bought by LinkedIn um, and uh, you moved on and, you know, built built your next company, Superhuman. Uh, Was that also a process of sort of scratching your own itch? Uh, Was it your problem that you were trying to solve or did you take a different approach to uh, building an email client? I know that I've watched Superhuman for a long time and I'm sure you've heard this more than anybody in the whole world. But the the biggest question I think in the beginning with Superhuman is like, why would you go up against Gmail? Like, why would you build an email client? Who would ever pay money for an email client when there's free tools out there, Uh, etc.? So talk me through the process of deciding, you know, okay, building a better email client than what out, what's out there is the problem that I'm going to solve. Great questions.
0: So I think there are two there. We should probably take them separately. The first is, how did we find the problem? And the, the second is this notion of going up against an incumbent, especially in an area where the next best product is a <laughs> very, very <laughs> tough thing yeah. to do. But actually, it's less crazy yeah. than it sounds once you dig into it. So during the two years of running Reportive as founder and CEO, and subsequent two years at LinkedIn, where I was also running all of our email integrations, I developed a very intimate view of email and how professionals do it. I could see Gmail getting worse every single year, becoming more cluttered, using more memory, consuming more CPU, slowing down your machine, still not working properly offline. And on top of this, people were installing plugins like ours, Reportive, but at the time also things like Boomerang, Mixmax, Clearbit, you name it, they had it. And each plugin took these problems of clutter, of memory, of CPU performance, of offline, and made all of them dramatically worse. So that was my experience. And I just (laughs) decided it's time for change. We imagined an email experience that's blazingly fast, where searches are instantaneous, where every interaction is 100 milliseconds or less. An email experience where you never actually had to touch the mouse, where you could do everything from the keyboard fly through your inbox. An email experience that just worked offline so you could be productive anywhere. And an email experience that had all of the best Gmail plugin functionality, but built in natively. And despite all of this, was somehow subtle, minimal, and visually gorgeous. So it really came out of a personal deep understanding of the product environment, and actually seeing the products that people were using get worse, not better, every single year. So that's the one. Now, why is it a good idea to go up against an incumbent? Well, I'm also, many folks will know, an avid angel investor. With my investing partner, Todd, we've now invested in 100 or so companies, and we love it when folks are going up against an incumbent. We love it When the next best product (laughs) is free, because it turns out that if you pick the dimensions upon which you compete carefully, it's very difficult, almost next to impossible for the incumbents to compete back. So take a product like Gmail. Gmail has, if you look at Google's numbers, north of 1 billion users. It is, by every way you slice it, a one-size-fits-all tool. And it turns out that the average number of emails that a Gmail user receives that they actually have to do something about is about five emails per day. Whereas the average number of emails that a superhuman user receives that they have to do something about can easily be in the many hundreds of emails. So we did this with a segmentation or a niche strategy. We built superhuman for the folks Mm. for whom email is work and work is email. For the folks where if they don't reply quickly to an email, they damage their reputation or they block their team or they miss opportunities. And then we specifically compete on dimensions that incumbents traditionally find hard. And so if you were to go all the way back to the start of Superhuman and look at our strategy from 2015, 2016, you'll see that I had written down, we would compete on speed and design. And that incumbents struggle to compete on speed because of a massive scale and an entrenched architecture. And they struggle to compete on design due to organizational structure and internal politics, as well as having to build a one size fits all solution. So it's far less insane than it, than it sounds.
1: <laughs> yeah, I love the framework. Um, and so. <clears throat> With what you've talked about so far, you know, you were at LinkedIn, you had a very intimate view of what email looked like, right? And a ton of data to support that. And you saw that, you know, the current solution is getting worse and worse. Um, you also had the opportunity, like what you said, you you broke down and you created a very clear niche of this is who has the problem the worst. So you said, you know, email clients are a problem, Gmail is a problem, Outlook's a problem, et cetera. And you said, who's it the most painful for? Like you said, people who email is work and work is email. So how far down that process did you get before you wrote sort of a single line of code? So talk me through the process of like deciding really specifically what you're going to build versus actually going out and building it. How did that process work? Like in what order did those things happen really early on in Superhuman?
0: The order for Superhuman was very different to the order for Repulsive. So I'll give both Mm -hmm. because... It really depends sure. on how you can generate momentum. The number one goal of a founder is to generate momentum. And I like to envisage a huge, ginormous flywheel of the densest material that you can think of. The densest element is osmium. It's twice as dense as lead, if, if that sort of gives you any indication. And imagine that it, at the start, it's standing still. And your job mm-hmm. is to get it rotating and you're pushing it. And for the first, few months as you're pushing it, it's barely moving, maybe fractions of a yeah. millimeter, but it's your goal to get this thing moving. And the the great thing is, especially in SaaS, once this thing starts moving, it's really hard to slow down. It will keep on moving by itself. Now, that's the goal. The goal isn't to write code. The goal, goal isn't to create a prototype. The goal isn't to raise funding or build a team or whatever else you might think actually is the goal. I used to think it was those things. Before Superhuman and before Reportive, I tried to start seven companies previously and failed in all kinds of different ways. But the summarization of how I failed was I got the goal wrong. The goal is to generate momentum. So how do you generate momentum? Well, it depends on what you uniquely can do. Another dirty little secret that few people would ever tell you is that at the start of almost every single company, if you dig all the way back to the very beginning, every company is actually started by one person. Sure, there are co-founders, and sure, there's a founding team, and of course, it takes a village and then a town and then a city to build anything that's noteworthy. But someone somewhere has to say, I'm doing this despite all of the people telling me that I'm crazy and how can you possibly, in this case, sell an email client and go up against the most well-funded company in the world? Someone has to fix it. <laughs> yeah. And then the question is, well, what can that one person uniquely do to generate momentum? Now for reportive, I didn't have any money. I didn't have any reputation. I had pretty decent access to very smart people having come out of the University of Cambridge. And I was also mm-hmm. a pretty decent web developer because I'd just for two years been the CTO. Of another failed startup. So this was in the era of Heroku and Ruby on Wales and jQuery and uh, that era of web technology. And I was pretty proficient in all the things. So I was able to single-handedly stand up, reportive, and built the version that scaled to the first 30,000, 40,000 users. That is awesome if you can do that because you now have generated momentum. All those potential co-founders who were sitting on the sidelines will think, oh, this train is leaving the station. I better get on board right now. Yeah, All the people yeah. who you might be considering raising money from, well, guess what? They're going to email you instead of you having to ping them. And that's what happened at Reportive. Yeah. I had no idea how to raise money, but I didn't have to because of the success that was being generated. Everyone reached out to me. Now, yeah. the second time round for Superhuman, it was very different. Uh, it was 2014, the Q- Q4 of 2014 as opposed to 2010. So it was four years later. And the the goal of Superhuman, it was just so much larger. Reportive exists as a feature in Superhuman today, and it's probably less than 2% of the product. So the scale of ambition was much, much greater. And I also was no longer a proficient web developer. I'd become a proficient founder and a proficient CEO. So although you might think, well, last time you started with a prototype, therefore that's what you should do this time, that actually would have been very suboptimal. Remembering that the actual goal of a founder is to generate momentum. So the very first thing I did was start to cash in on the the goodwill and the returns that I generated for the last company. So Reportive was a successful acquisition. Uh, Most investors made 3 to 5x their money. A few very early investors made north of 20x their investment. So I I wrote a deck, and I had the initial vision for Superhuman, which hasn't really changed very much to this day, although, of course, it's become a lot larger. And I went back to those folks, and I said, hey, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to build an email experience that's so darn good, people are going to pay for it. And I know that sounds crazy, but this is what i am <laughs> going to do. And in that first quarter, Q4 of 2014, I raised about $800,000, almost all of which were from people who'd backed me before. And so despite how crazy the idea is, their point of view was, well, if anyone in the world can pull this off, it's probably wrong. yes yeah. all of the right yeah. pieces laid together. Once I had a little bit of cash in the bank, and this was after about $250,000, I knew that I had to acquire the domain superhuman.com. Well, speaking of the name, I'd actually picked the name. Um, In June, July, earlier that year. And that's like a whole- So
1: that was part of the deck. You knew Superhuman
0: from day one. Correct. So, so what the, you wanted to call it. it uh, not quite day one. I'd incorporated okay. the, com- the company in February of 2014. And okay. I had just come out of LinkedIn in February of 2014, but I was super burned out. Yeah. For anyone who's gone through an acquisition, definitely don't just start your next company immediately afterwards. You really do owe it to yourself (laughs) to enjoy the proceeds, take some time. I took about six to nine months off after leaving getting. I'd picked the name around the, I think actually the March, April timeframe. And I'd started fundraising in Q4. And I knew that this was going to be A household brand company. I knew that one of the core growth channels was going to be a virality and that therefore brand was going to be exceptionally important. I knew that we were going to use techniques like email signatures, which surprise, surprise, still works. But today it has to stand out from the crowd. You can't just be, um, something like, uh, you know, just, just, I'm trying to think, I don't want to pick on any one other email product, but most of them have very boring sounding names as opposed to a brand that actually stands for something. So I knew that the email signature had to stand out from any other potential email signature that you might see. And so there was this notion that I had to acquire superhuman.com. That was not easy. That was hard. It was hard because the person (laughs) who owned it had owned it for about seven or eight years and had rebuffed every single previous attempt from every single previous founder uh, for acquiring (laughs) it. I similarly went on a mission to get the superhuman Twitter handle and then eventually to get that verified. That took many, many years because it was owned by another startup. So I had to get it off that startup. But over the course of about four or five months, I did eventually acquire superhuman.com. One key trick there is don't Try and do this yourself. Always hire a broker who knows what they're doing, uh, because they will be able to put the pressure on the seller in a way that doesn't make it clear who they're representing, and so they'll be able to
1: get God. the best price. So you, best price that way. so you hired like a domain broker to help you go find, help you go acquire Superhuman.com.
0: Exactly, and he's a very good domain broker, and he was able to get it. Folks are pr- probably wondering how much it ended up costing. That's the question I always get asked. Uh, the initial mm-hmm. ask was for about $250,000, which I felt was too much. Okay. That would have been all of the cash yeah. in the company bank account at that point. But I got him down to $175,000, which sounds like a lot. But on an interest-free, uh, oh, there's a there's a word for this, where you, you pay down the loan over time. So interest-free, paid down loan over time over seven years. So basically had spread the oh, cost wow. of 175K over seven years. And I knew that I would raise a Series A within two years. And at that mm. point, it would seem nil yeah. free. And so from my point of view, this was an incredibly cheap deal. I was basically leasing it during the seed round period, knowing that as soon as I'd raised the Series A, would pay it off entirely. So that was the rest of Q4. Okay. And that was about the first three months. So I can continue into the next three months if you think it's useful, or we can go elsewhere.
1: So let's pause there. And I want to dig down into a couple of things. I I obviously, I really like the framework around momentum. Um, and I think that's been talked about quite a lot. I I don't think it could be talked about enough, but I love what you've introduced. The way I kind of think about how you explained it is this concept of one, I, I really like that one person has to get the thing started. Right. Um, and even when you have co-founding teams, it's like one person was the one who came into the room and said, guys, we're doing this. This is why, et cetera. But I love how slight, you you kind that. of have.
0: Yeah. Because there's no one to go into a room to. It's one person who just starts doing it with whatever resources yeah. they have. The mistake I'd previously yeah. made was looking for that room and looking for the team to say, guys, this is what we're doing. Because they'll be like, eh, I don't like the idea, or it's going to fail, or whatever. And maybe, yeah, hopefully, they're more yeah. optimistic than that. But even so, they'll be like, well, why don't we do X, Y, Z? I'm, I'm sh- they'll have their own ideas. There, There is no better yeah. way than simply doing it,
1: showing that it works, and then asking people to yeah. join you. Yeah. And I I love that. I think, so, amazing correction, because I think, so So not only that concept, we're, we're that train leaving the station, right? Where it's like, hey, this is there's legs here. There's something's happening. But also how you described it, you know, the difference between reportive and superhuman, which is this concept of like you as a founder have certain resources at your disposal at different times of your life. Right. And so you know, when you started reportive, you you hadn't you didn't you, you didn't have all the money in the world or you didn't have investors who you had previously created returns for. So you said, Well, what do I have? Well, I'm a great web programmer. I'm gonna start there. Mm-hmm. Um And then with superhuman, you were like, hey, I'm not that great of a web programmer anymore because I haven't been doing it for a long time. But this time I have a lot of goodwill that I can tap into. So I can get some money raised and then I can get things moving, et cetera. I think that's a really phenomenal framework. And I I really like, I think one of the things we always struggle with with founders is that like start, there's not a checklist. There's especially not like a linear order of things that need to be done to get a company off the ground. And I think that's a great way to think about it, where it's like, there is There are things that you have to do in no particular order, but the way you decide what you should do is just ask yourself, well, what can I do right now with what I have, with the resources I have? And to your point, once that, I think all smart people are looking for flywheels that are already spinning a little bit, right? Like very few people actually want to be the first person to push on the flywheel. And so to your point of like, Hey, with Reportive, it's like we got 30 to 40,000 users and I'm sure. An investor asks you, "Oh, well, how big is your team?" And you're like, "It's literally just me." And they're like, "All right, take my money, right? Like, take my money. We want to invest." So, so talks. So in that with that concept, so you raise the round for Superhuman, um, and then kind of what next? So your first step in terms of building momentum was like, I can get some cash in the bank, and we can start investing that cash. The first thing was, you know, the domain because brand is very important. How did you then go about, so that was the first three months, how did the next three months kind of pan out? How did you continue to gather resources and build momentum?
0: So getting the domain takes us towards the end of 2014 and the start of 2015. Mm -hmm. I was very casually raising money all the way through 2014 and 2015, meaning as and when I was introduced to investors who were potentially interested, I'd go pitch them. But I didn't go out on like a fundraising blitz. I think that's a very important nuance. I didn't try and raise a million dollars before I did anything else. I I took the entire of Q4 to raise about 800000 And so in the meantime, I was working on other things. Uh, I was educating myself. I was reading, just catching up on the state of art of startups. For example, there's a book that I would highly recommend to, to any finder, uh, which is Traction by Gabrielle Weinberg and Justin Mez, uh, because I, I wanted to make sure that I had a concept for the growth of Superhuman built into the company and the product from day one. And then when we get to January, it was actually starting to work on what is this product? Like, let's make it real. And the way that I did that, and I love doing it this way because it sort of really forces you to figure out what's special, is to start writing the copy for the landing page and not just start writing it, like finish writing it. This is not too dissimilar to the Bezos notion of start with the PR release, Uh, but we're a startup, so we don't get to do PR releases, so start with the landing page. (laughs) And I took it really seriously. This, This is not something I just busted out in one day. This was a six-week yeah. full-time endeavor, meaning, uh, and, and for context, about a thousand words long. If you were to go to superhuman.com today, it is precisely what you see there. Uh, nothing has changed yep. since 2015 in terms of that landing page. It is precisely the same copy.
1: So you nailed, so you nailed the vision.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we actually got it right from the get-go, which uh, I, is very lucky. Yeah. It doesn't always happen, but the, yeah. the vision was correct from day one. And, uh, it, it, to be clear, we need to change the website. I'm not saying it's the right website for today, but it was the (laughs) right website for back then. And I spent six weeks writing that copy, researching other email application websites, finding the words that I liked, figuring out the tone and the voice. I literally rewrote every single sentence north of five to 10 times. I should probably actually make this uh, uh, a blog post. I think it might be interesting for folks to see the process, but subjected the entire landing page to a very intense copywriting process. And that took about four to six weeks. Now, as I was doing this, I was updating my deck. I was continuing to improve my pitch. Remember, I'm casually meeting investors all along the way. And all along this way, I'm also attempting to recruit a founding team. So would-be co-founders. Now, I ultimately ended up with two co-founders, Comrade Irwin and Vivek Sedera. Comrade's still with the company today. Vivek ended up leaving Superhuman towards the end of last year. But my goal was to find co-founders. I would never recommend that anyone truly be a single founder. It is a very hard and lonely journey, and you do need folks who are going to build this with you. But those folks, to your point, anyone smart is going to want to see momentum. And so... Yeah. In the same way that it's wise to send out investor updates to your investors during the good and bad, and not just to go back to them when things are going bad, it's wise to drip feed progress to your would-be co-founders and your would-be candidates so that they really feel the pulse and the beat of this project. And so they get the sense that actually, this is no longer a project. This is a company and it's going to happen. And so I was building this, building this copy out and sending it to, to would be co-founders. Once I had the copy done, yeah. I then started on the wireframes. So what actually is this okay. product going to look like? And how will it work? Not high fidelity. This was low fidelity using Balsamic. And I ended up creating probably over the course of another three to four weeks, about 50, 60 different screens modeled after what the best email applications were. At that time, with the enhancements that I thought would make them significantly better. And I definitely got some things yep. wrong. So at that time, we had a three pane layout, meaning we had a sidebar and a preview pane and a contextual sidebar. So the list of threads, your inbox, so to speak, was in one very narrow view, which is how MailApp does it on uh, native Mac OS, but it's not how most people who have a very high volume of email like to see their inbox. They like to see it full screen like Gmail does it, as a simple example of something that I got wrong. So that was the next three to four weeks. And then this sort of brings us to March, April, May. It was finding a design partner to turn those wireframes into really high-fidelity designs, pixel-perfect designs. Now, I'm not a... Great visual designer. I'm a good creative director. I can direct a visual design to very high quality, but I don't personally have the skill set to push every pixel myself. And so this was where I recognized that at that time. And so I found this amazing organization, UENO, U-E-E-N-O, that had previously or was at that time working with Uber and Airbnb, run by this chap called Halley, an amazing designer. And we were one of his very first clients. And so I said to him, hey, this is the vision. This is my fundraising deck. These are the wireframes. This is my mood board. I'd assembled images that sort of conveyed the brand that we were trying to achieve. I'd love to work with you on high fidelity designs. And the reason for that is probably not what folks are thinking. It's not because these were the designs that we ended up making, but it was because I wanted to get everything to the next level of realism. This was another way to generate momentum. These were ultimately throwaway designs. But they helped me get my founding team on board. They helped me get the next set of investors on board. And they helped me find out what product questions and what design questions I hadn't yet answered. And so that roughly takes me to May of June, May or June of 2015, by which point I had probably one no two and a half million dollars in the bank. We had superhuman.com. We had all the wireframes. We had the landing page copy ready and we were designing. The actual landing page itself. I had two co-founders, Conrad Irwin and Vivek Sadera, and we also had our first engineer, Bavesh Kakadia, who Vivek had brought over from his
1: previous startup that had wound down previously. So we were off to the races. It's awesome. I mean, just starting from like that little that little grain of sand in the very beginning of you know the the goodwill you had from <clears throat> Reportive. So you went through this whole process. I guess the last thing I'm Curious about, and you know, we love talking to our founders about is When was the first time? So, so, you gathered a lot of information from LinkedIn about how people were using Gmail. You you chose this niche of people who do a lot of email for work. When was the ver- first time you talked to prospective customers and and sort of put something in front of them? When did you loop them into the process of building Superhuman? I've always believed in picking a
0: product area where I am a perfect example of a prospective customer. That was true for Reportive. It's true for Superhuman. If I ever do another company, it's almost certainly going to be true for that also. Yeah, Because it gives you such an unfair advantage. I can have that internal dialogue with myself constantly, all the time, every day, and that's what I did. So the answer to your question is from day zero, I was just asking myself, is this something that would make my life better? And then because of the unique... Type of product that Superhuman is because investors happen to be high volume emailers, they were also all prospected customers. They also intimately felt the problem, so I could ask them. During the course of Reportive, I'd made many friends who were founders, all of whom are also very high volume emailers. And so I could also ask them. So just through my social connections, I was able to sanity test the idea for Superhuman as we went. However, that's what I'd call operating in low gear. Soon you have to ramp this up to the next level. And we did this around mm-hmm. May or June when we started to get the landing page live. That first landing page was not great. It was essentially just a paragraph and a a, a little box where you could put your email address in. But nevertheless, people were finding us Slow to begin with, 10, 20, 30 per day, but this this is a number that has just increased since then. And this is a simple hack, but one of the most powerful hacks to constantly interview users all the time. So from that time, yeah, whenever anybody would sign up, they would receive an automated email from me, and that email would say, "Hi, this is Rahul. Thank you for signing up for Superhuman. Can't wait to show you what we're working on. Before we jump in, I have two quick questions." Number one, what do you use for email today? Number two, what do you hate about it? Thanks, Rahul. Bye. <laughs> That's it. That was literally all my email. Yeah. I don't know what the response yeah. rate was. I never tracked that number, but enough people replied to that email that it soon became a full-time job just staying on top of those those emails back and forth. And initially it was me That's that true. eventually it was our head of growth but we stayed on top of these emails. And the trick is is not just to sort of log it away, but as soon as you get a response, to quickly and rapidly reply in a very authentic manner and just keep on asking why. So people would say, for example, I use Gmail and I use Boomerang, and what I hate about it is how clunky and slow everything is. Uh, And then I would reply back and I'd be like, well, why is it clunky? Why is it slow? What features in Boomerang are you using? And they might say, well, I'm using uh, a reminder if people don't reply, and I'm using send later. And then I would reply back again, and I would say, well, which one of those is more important? Is it reminders if people don't reply, or is it scheduled sending? And of course, they'd reply back and say, well, it's reminders if people don't reply. And then I'd keep on digging. I'd be like, well, okay, is it reminders if people don't reply? Do you ever use reminders regardless? And you know, I'm starting to collect data. Now, this isn't being tagged or triaged any, anywhere, not at this point in the company. Today, we take that very seriously. Sure. But it was it was being logged in my mind, and it was developing yeah. a mental model, an intuition of what people were looking for. And through that method, okay. we actually interviewed 700 customers, if actually not more, over the course of that first year of Superhuman. So on average, more than two per day. Yeah.
1: Wow. And, and uh, I mean, it's incredibly impressive. And I-, I- sort of chuckled to myself as you say the the email from Rahul. And, you know, I think everyone's so familiar with the messages from you, right? Um, you know, even today we get you know, new feature launches and all that stuff. And that's still a big part of the company. So at that stage, so, you know, you set up this incredible feedback loop from your customers. Um, how did you... How did you manage that? So really, really nailing the product, kind of building out this mental product roadmap of I've got a really good intuition, understanding of the features that our customers want. How did you balance that with scale? So when did you sort of shift gears from, okay, we're going to keep this small. We're going to try to talk to every single customer in depth. You know, the, the process is inherently not scalable. Like you're kind of logging this in your head, et cetera. When did you feel like, okay, let's start really putting our foot on the gas. Did that happen naturally or was it a, a, a conscious decision? It was about two to two and a half years later. And by the way, it is scalable.
0: I've talked to every user, even as you scale, we, we do so today. We heavily invest in that and we sure. tag and triage every single thing that we've heard. I think at this point, we've tagged over 85,000 verbatim phrases from our customers in different ways, which gives us a real edge when it comes to building the product but the answer to your question how did we know when we could scale this is where it gets to the superhuman product market fit engine and so it was clear to me in that first one or two years that we didn't have product market fit and i also knew that product market fit is the number one reason why startups succeed and the lack of it is the number one reason why startups fail and so therefore mm-hmm. we had to get to that point but i didn't know how to measure product market fit. I didn't have a methodology for iterating and for developing it. And uh, Many people on the call are probably familiar with this now. It's one of the most widely read introductions to the topic. But I ended up coming up with a methodology, not just to measure product market fit, but to iterate and develop it over time and a way to systematically increase your degree of product market fit over time. So I came up with that engine then we ran that engine, and when our products market fit was consistently north of forty percent and rising, and when our MPS was consistently north of fifty, and when our engagement was high, and when our churn was low, or equivalently, our retention was high, that was when it was mm-hmm. obvious that we had something that was going to be amazing, and we step on the gas. And you can sequence those things. Not all of those things are going to be true on day one. The very first thing to look out for is is your products market fit score.
1: 40% or more. And that was when you knew, like, it's time to shift gears. It's time to go.
0: Well, that's when you start looking at other measures. It's necessary, yeah. but it's not sufficient. So you start looking at MPS. You start looking at uh, engagement rates, which is a leading indicator of survey results. You start looking at uh, dollar churn and dollar retention. You can have high product market fit score, but still have not a great business, for example, if uh, you're not retaining enough of your users by the end of the year. So you you do want to make sure that you have a lot of things in place. But the very first thing is the product market fit
1: score. Awesome. Yeah, and I think, so would you think about product market fit as a reflection of the, the amount of value that you're bringing to your customer base? So the way that we measure it is how would you feel?
0: if you could no longer use Supergly? And you get to answer on three different ways. Uh, Not disappointed, meaning you wouldn't care. Somewhat disappointed, you kind of care. And very disappointed, you would care considerably if the product were to disappear. Now, what does that actually measure? Sure, it could be value. It could be dependence. It could be emotional connection. There's a lot of things wrapped up in one. It specifically doesn't ask how valuable is superhuman to you. It specifically doesn't ask, uh, do you need this product? It's just how would you feel if it were to go away? And the question is deliberately vague in that way. Because there are multiple ways to create something that people would be very disappointed if, if they were to stop using. But ultimately, that's, that's what we're trying to, to get to. Whether it's through being entertaining or through being useful. They're both viable ways to create a good product that has product market fit.
1: Well, incredible. whole. Uh-huh. this has been incredibly insightful. It's been awesome having you on. Uh, I think we've got a lot of great nuggets here, um, a ton of amazing learnings, kind of looking under the hood of your personal process and and, and the story of Superhuman. Um, so a few people want to know, just in closing, what's next for Superhuman? So I think a, a lot of people have asked, you know, Superhuman 2.0. With the next generation Gen Z, you know, coming into the field and and, and using the internet in such different ways, like where's superhuman heading? Well, we have a lot of incredibly exciting things in the works, some of
0: which I can talk to, some of which obviously I can't. (laughs) And what you might expect over the coming weeks is a very exciting calendar feature. So the foundation for calendar features to come, we're building a full week calendar view. Uh, And that's going to be tremendously useful. I've personally stopped going to Google Calendar. There's no need for me because it's built into Superhuman now. And that's going to come shortly. On a slightly longer timescale, on a timescale of three to five months, Superhuman for Outlook. The Google Workspace ecosystem is only about 11% of the overall productivity ecosystem. So we're going to massively expand our markets by bringing Superhuman to Office 365 that's going to happen this year as well. And then for after that, I will say, wait and see. It's going to be exciting.
1: Well, awesome. Well, two awesome things to look forward to. I, I saw your tweet on your how painful would it be for your Outlook users test. And it, it seems like uh, you guys are in a great position to to crack that piece of the market. Obviously, the the calendar integration is incredibly exciting, right? That's the other huge piece for everybody. So you know, for anyone who's on uh, or listening that you know, doesn't use Superhuman or hasn't tested it out, I um, would definitely recommend going and testing it out and becoming part of the Superhuman team. And uh, Rahul, I have to thank you again. This has been incredible. It's, it's really, really useful um, for founders all over the world to hear you know human stories like this uh, about how something was actually started. Um, so I've got to thank you once again.
0: Ready to change the world? Come join us at www.antler.co. Find your co-founder, test your idea, launch your company with Antler.